0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to First Corinthians 13, where we will conclude our study of this chapter before Paul pivots to the application of all that he's been saying in chapters twelve and thirteen and chapter fourteen next Sunday. We'll pick start working our way through chapter fourteen. But I do want us to look this morning at verses eight to thirteen. This chapter we said is the chapter of love and it is sandwiched very neatly between chapter 12 and chapter 13 in our English bibles and in this whole section paul is exhorting the corinthians and us to ensure that all things in the church are being done decently and in order all the way back even into chapter 11 that's his primary concern and that what all that happens in the corporate gathering would would be done in the way that god prescribes word had reached paul and the that the corinthian church had kind of taken on a prideful preoccupation with the miraculous gifts, particularly the miraculous gifts of tongues. And uh, he got word of that and how that had become a wedge that was now dividing the body of Christ and disrupting the peace of the fellowship. And um, they had written to him with their questions and their concerns and their thoughts about spiritual gifts. And some of that obviously was needed in need of correction. And so Paul is writing back to them here using this section of his letter, a large portion of the letter, if, if you think about it, to give an overview of spiritual gifts as well as to make application to their specific context, which is what he's going to get into in chapter 14. And right in the middle of that you know, explanation of the gifts and the application is this chapter on love, and, uh, and he is going to explain to us, and has been explaining to us this most excellent way. and love is uh, we have said all along, is the chief of Christian graces. It is the chief of Christian graces in chapter uh, thirteen verses one to three, because without Christian love, he says, we are nothing. It doesn't matter whether we have the most spectacular gifts of speech, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we have the sum total of earthly and divine knowledge or give our wa- lives away in sacrifice and dedication. Without love, he says, all of that is worthless. It counts for nothing, it profits us, it profits us nothing. So love is the essential ingredient that cannot be left out. And then we saw last Sunday in verses four to seven uh, that love is the chief of Christian graces because love grounds all manner of holy conduct. Love is at the foundation of all, holy conduct. If you see in verse 4, he says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The heart of love like a spring that continually brings forth and overflows water to fill the fields and make them fruitful, that love causes all kinds of holy affections and conduct to grow and to thrive in the lives of God's people. Paul can, Paul can line up any and all virtues in the scriptures, patience, kindness, contentment, humility, propriety, selflessness, forgiveness, faithfulness, as he does here, he can put those next to love and say, love is that. And that is a true statement. That is an accurate statement. Love as the one necessary thing, therefore becomes the foundation that all Christian virtue is built upon. And so Paul can say, like he does later in chapter 16 and verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. This heavenly Christ-centered love which the triune God has wrought in us through his spirit, is the chief of Christian graces. And it was conspicuously lacking in their fellowship, in this church's fellowship, as Paul writes them, which was a huge problem because if it's the foundation of all godliness and it's lacking, that means all godliness is lacking in their midst. And it's important, I think, just to stop and make note that that we as a church are not immune to the same issue of of a lack of love. When our love grows cold, it will not be long before the poisonous weeds of wickedness kind of spring up in our midst. Uh, Instead of patience, there will be short fuses. Instead of kindness, there will be harshness and callousness. Without love, instead of rejoicing over the blessings of others, there'll be rivalry in the church. And instead of humility, there'll be pride and arrogance. Instead of propriety and a sense of decorum, there will be all kinds of dishonorable contact. Instead of deference to others, we'll insist on our own way. Or instead of forgiveness, we'll be filled with bitterness and resentment. Instead of graciousness, there will be anger. And instead of delighting in what honors God, we'll inevitably make excuses for what glorifies the flesh. This is what happens when our love grows cold in the church. And when we see these things in our own hearts, When we see them in others, in our churches, we know that we or they are not keeping fervent in love. It's just like a fever or body aches and a cough would alert you to the fact that you're suffering from some kind of physical illness. So in the same way, ungodliness, wickedness, selfishness in the church alert us to spiritual illness. It alerts us that there is a lack of love in the body of Christ, a love for God, lack of love for God, and a lack of love for the brethren. So, so we said love is the chief of Christian graces as we kind of work through this chapter because without it, we are nothing. And as he saw, as we saw last Sunday in verses 4 to 7, it is the foundation of all godliness. And thirdly, and this is what we're going to look at this morning in verses 8 to 13, love is the chief of Christian graces because of its permanence, its permanence, In verses 8 to 13, Paul is building his final argument for why love must be our, as Christians, utmost priority and pursuit. And that argument is essentially that when all is said and done, when all the temporal realities of this world come and go, love, which uniquely stamps the life of heaven, that still remains. So he's going to make this argument to us this morning in kind of three movements, and this is how I'd encourage you to, to uh, think about it and, and how we're going to outline the text this morning. Uh, in ver- the beginning part of verse 8, we see the confirmation. We'll see the confirmation of love's endurance. And then in verses, uh, the latter part of verse 8, and all the way into chapter 12, that's contrasted with life's impermanence. And that finally gives way to the conclusion in verse 13 of love's preeminence. So, we see the confirmation of love's endurance, the contrast of life's impermanence, and the conclusion of love's preeminence. So, that's going to be our outline for this morning. So, we begin in verse 8, in the opening clause of verse 8, with the confirmation of love's endurance. He says, love never fails. Now, this this verb, fail, fail, in the original language, Lord means to fall, it can be used figuratively to refer to falling into guilt or sin or apostasy, um, like it is in chapter 10 um, and uh, verse 8 and, and verse 12. He says, Now let us, uh, now, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 20,000 fell, speaking of the Old Testament saints, in one day. Um, again in chapter 12, he's, or verse 12, he says, "Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall." same, same term. Uh, but it can also be used of something becoming invalid or being deprived of its force, like it is in Luke chapter 16 and verse 17, which we saw in equipping hour. It says, "It is easier. Jesus said, "It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a, or letter of the law to fail." That's the idea to fall." But looking at this in its context, you'll notice that the verb fail, at the beginning of verse 8, is contrasted with the description of love as abiding or remaining at the end of this section in verse 13. And it's also set over and against the spiritual gifts which pass away or cease in the last, latter part of verse 8. So as we think about it, again, words getting their meaning from their context, there's a sense in which love is never brought down. That's Paul's point. It never, or excuse me, it does endure. In English, we regularly say something falls apart. That that may be a a turn of a phrase we might use as a way to describe the disintegration or the the demise of something or someone that we view as unshakable or steadfast. And I think that would be a reasonable paraphrase of the opening clause of verse 8. Love never falls apart. Love is never defeated. It is never crumbling to the ground. It never gets washed into the sea. It is never extinguished. As uh, Solomon speaks of the love that a husband and a wife have together, Song of Solomon, verse chapter eight, verse seven says, "Many waters cannot quench love." And I think that's a good way to think about this virtue of Christian love, which makes sense because love reflects the character of God himself. God is love. This is who he is in his essential nature. Love never deviates from what it is, and what it is, of course, is eternal. Christian love is heaven's life, we said, manifests in us on earth so it remains even after everything has come to its appointed end in this present order. And so we just begin in verse 8 by looking at the, the endurance of love, love's endurance. But over against love's endurance, we'll see here, and, and this is kind of the, a larger section of our outline, in later latter part of verse 8 down to verse 12, we see the contrast of life's impermanence, the contrast of life's impermanence. He says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So, we've seen this glorious description of love in verses 4 to 7. Paul is giving us, you know, love is this, and it's that, and it doesn't do this, and it doesn't do that. But Paul hasn't lost sight of his overall argument here as he's working through this. And so, he references these three spiritual gifts, because the issue is their abuse and misuse of tongues. He references three spiritual gifts here, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge that are all destined to come to an end. And he uses that reality as a contrast, a foil, if you will, to the enduring character of love. What do I mean by this word foil? If you're writing a short story, or maybe a long story, and you want the main characters, youth and innocence, for example, to pop and stand out, then you would you you know, one of the tools in your tool belt as a writer is to write another character into the plot who makes those qualities all the more um, noticeable. So you you could create a character who's the opposite of that, somebody old, somebody cynical. And so then that older disillusioned character then becomes a perfect foil for this young kind of innocent person. And then that makes their youth and innocence all the more vivid and sharp. And that's essentially how verses 8 to 12 function in this argument. They are a foil to the endurance of love. He's contrasting them. You might ask yourself as you read these verses, is there any significance to the gifts that Paul lists in verse 8? And I believe that there is a significance to those things. Uh, First, prophecy. He mentions prophecy that was his own preferred spiritual gift for the building up of the body, and he's going to argue for that very persuasively and, and uh, the importance of it in chapter 14, and we'll, we'll get into that next week. But he also references tongues and knowledge, which are the Corinthians' preferred gifts. These are the things that they were exalting. These are the things that they were most preoccupied with, and they weren't being used to build up the body so much as it was to puff themselves up. But what's important to note here is that all three of these gifts, prophecy, um, tongues, and knowledge, all of them are, are miraculous in nature and revelatory. And this is what they do at their core. Prophecy, is in, simplest, in the simplest terms, means to speak forth or to proclaim. It assumes that the speaker is, is in front of an audience and can mean to speak publicly. A prophet of God, therefore, is simply one who speaks forth God's word And prophecy, as a noun, is the proclaiming of that word. But the gift of prophecy, Paul's referring to here, is is the spirit-given and spirit-empowered ability to proclaim God's word and his will effectively. And it particularly is doing that in the context of new revelation, to give new revelation so you have to understand in the earliest part of the church, and this Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier letters in the New Testament, in the absence of a totality of Scripture being written and available, the local church needed those with the gift of prophecy to communicate God's truth, you know, to make it known, but also to um, you know, apply it and to communicate God's truth in this new covenant context. And so even, even churches that had a portion of the New Testament, maybe they had a letter from Paul, maybe they had a letter from Peter, or they had a copy of um, some other letter written to one of other churches, they would still need someone to proclaim that word, and they would still need someone to teach it faithfully to the congregation. So prophecy, as Paul speaks of it here, is this miraculous gift of speaking forth God's revelation to his church and exhorting them to the building up of the body. Secondly, he mentions tongues. We didn't really talk about tongues in a lot of detail in um, back in chapter 12, but he references it there. He references it here. He's going to get into a lot of detail in chapter 14. But tongues, or this gift of languages, was a spirit-wrought capacity to speak a real language that the speaker themselves hadn't studied and didn't know. We see this in action in Acts chapter 2. So just Put your finger in 1 Corinthians and turn back to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is, uh, of course, a prominent one in the life of the church as being the birth of the church. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men of every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are, why are not all these who are speaking um, Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. He says we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty acts of God. And so here we see this clear manifestation of this gift of languages. And you notice what the crowds say in verse 8 and again in verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. When someone exercised this gift of tongues, they were speaking about God's deeds, likely his mighty work of salvation accomplished through Christ. And they were doing that in real discernible languages, and this was particularly uh, meant to be a sign to unbelievers to confirm God's truthfulness and power, and it was also as a way to quickly and efficiently disseminate the good news of the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? All these folks were in Jerusalem. They all spoke different languages, probably as their primary language, and yet, how do you get that message of The hope of the gospel in Christ, how do you get that into all those different cultures quickly? Well, you can communicate it in their own tongue, in their own language, and that is what you see happening here. And so, in a sense, what happens at Pentecost, and and as this gift is exercised in the early church, it was a partial reversal of God's judgment at Babel, which confused man's language so that they could not understand one another. That is reversed. This gift of tongues then was a real discernible language that the person who spoke it didn't know. They hadn't been taught it. It was not gibberish. It was not some kind of angelic language or an ecstatic utterance in which the person was out of their mind. When someone spoke in tongues, they did so for the advancement of or the building up of Christ's church. And Paul instructs, as Paul instructs in chapter 14, in verses 20 and 27, there is always to be someone in the church who would interpret. If you look over there, he says, um, He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be, should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So the reality is that this church, this gift was given so that the church would be edified, or that the church would go forward and that the gospel would go forward. So, so we see this gift of tongues as a very particular manifestation. This is what we understand. Thirdly, he mentions knowledge here. This likely refers to utterances of knowledge, which in the apostolic age included revelation, again, of Christ, to Christ's church, This gift of knowledge isn't just like the ability to learn things and study them. We all can do that, unbelievers and believers. This is referring to a spirit-enabled capacity to discern God's will and to make skillful and practical application of the truth into various situations. It's not likely general knowledge that all men arrive at through personal study or observation and things like that. That's not what he's talking about here. I want you to notice that what Paul says about these gifts, though, this is why we're, we're explaining what these things are. He says at the end of verse 8, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. These miraculous sign gifts are temporary and transitory in nature. The verb translated Pass away with respect to prophecy, and he uses the same term again when he speaks of knowledge, is used elsewhere in the New Testament by Paul to speak about the passing away of the present age. Uh, he says this uses that term in chapter 15. And it's which is also, of course, our this present order, this physical world and universe we live in is, is temporary and transitory. A different he uses a different term to speak of tongues. He says they will cease or stop, which it could have significance as being a different word, but most likely is just a kind of rhetorical flourish. He's just varying up his, his vocabulary to make it a little bit more interesting to the original readers. But I want you to notice Paul pivots in verses 9 and 10 to explain what he's just said at the end of verse 8. Because as he says this, the thought would probably pop into their mind, Why? What do you mean? The gift of prophecy will pass. What do you mean? Tongues will cease. You know. What what do you mean? Knowledge is going to pass away. What is that? Well, he says, "For we know in part, and we prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away." How how should we understand this? Well, it's it's not difficult to understand that we know in part, (laughs) because we know uh, the more we know about God. The more we realize we don't know about God um, if we're humble. So, you know, this is, a, this is just a basic reality that even in God's revelation, our understanding of who God is is, is limited. It's, it's always partial. It's never complete. Well, what does he mean by that we prophecy in part? Well, probably the idea is that God does not reveal everything to one person or in one context such that the prophet is only able to give a partial glimpse of truth. Even prophets in the New Testament, they didn't know everything and they didn't have full knowledge of all that was going on. Sometimes they didn't understand how those things were going to be accomplished and in whom they were going to be accomplished. And I think, and we mentioned this briefly at the end of Equipping Hour, that probably the idea is that from an apologetic distinction, I think it's important to note that there's a distinction between the Word of God, the Bible, and other religious texts like the Quran, like the Book of Mormon, like some of the official writings of the Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Most of those other religious texts were composed over a very short period of time, and they were done so by only one or two individuals, depending on the context. But as we look at the scriptures, they're written over a span of 1,500 years from start to finish by some 40 different authors spread over a wide geographic territory and yet it has the scriptures have this remarkable continuity and coherence to them and and that in a sense gives uh, a tremendous clarity to the who God is and his way of salvation and so this distribution of God's revelation you could argue, was purposeful and providential by God in order to bear witness to the divine nature of its revelation. No one man has a monopoly on truth. No one place has a monopoly on truth. We prophecy in part. We know in part. But he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When the perfect comes, he says, the partial will be done away. What does that mean? There's all kinds of debate over what the perfect is. This this um, adjective that's used as kind of a subject. When that passes away, uh, when it, when it comes, excuse me, everything else passes away. What's that referring to? Well, some think it's talking about the completion of Scripture, the canon of Scripture. Um, when the perfect meaning, you know, the the final revelation of God in His Word. Um, but I don't think that's how they would have understood that, and I don't think they were expecting that necessarily. Um, some think it's the rapture, that the perfect refers to the rapture of the church. Others argue, no, it's not the rapture, but the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Some think it refers to the maturation of the church, but that's not really altogether different than the rapture and the second coming, because um, at that time, believers will be Made perfect or mature and glorified so so you know all those things have their weaknesses and we don't have the time to get into all the specifics of it this morning, but basically the adjective conveys this idea of something de- of the destined end or aim of something, the perfect. it can mean mature or complete, which is how it's used, for instance in James chapter one uh, in James chapter one he says um, he says, uh, let, let endurance have its perfect or maturing results so that, or it, so that you may be mature, grown up, and complete, lacking in nothing. So um, is, it can be used in that sense, and that's a term that comes up again and again in James. Um, Paul is, s- seems to be, uh, so it can mean that, but Paul is saying that when that consummation of perfection is reached, he says, all that is partial disappears. And so logically, the, the only possibility in context for the perfect that he's referring to here is this eternal heavenly state of believers. This is what it's, I think he is getting at. He's saying that the spiritual gifts, whether they're miraculous or not, are only for a time. They operate for a season. The gifts have to do with the building up of the church as it eagerly awaits the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the age, the final purpose of God's saving work in Christ will have been reached. It will have come to fruition. And at that point, the gifts which are now necessary for the building up of the church in this present age, that will disappear because the complete will have come. As one theologian wrote, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. I think that's the picture that Paul's painting here. You say, well, why do you or why do we believe that certain miraculous or sign gifts have ceased in the present? If that's talking about the future, why do we believe that those gifts have ceased? And to that I would reply, because of their nature and purpose. Miraculous gifts are distinct in their nature and purpose, They're distinct from the non miraculous gifts. The miraculous gifts were for revealing and confirming the word and will of God in his church. And those miraculous gifts were only valuable and good and useful insofar as they accomplished that end. And so, when God's word was fully revealed and written down for all God's people, and they had that prophetic word, Peter says, made more sure, those gifts ceased. The miraculous gifts were a means to a very particular end. And when that end was reached, they stopped. It's also worth noting that prophecy, knowledge, and tongues argue more for the imperfection and immaturity of the church than they do for its perfection. This is something that isn't brought up very often, but it should be because it's a powerful argument for the gifts ceasing. They were necessary for the church. In their infancy, as a support or a brace until the church reached full growth. Again, my dad was a landscaper. We used to plant stuff all the time. And at least in Florida, when you plant palm trees, which is pretty much all we planted, you always create a well of dirt, and you still do other trees too, around the base of the tree so that when the water would run down, it would pool toward the base of the roots. Otherwise, the water would just run off. When you plant a young tree in the ground, you mount up that dirt so that it can receive the water that it needs to grow. Because the root system hasn't developed enough to absorb enough moisture from the ground when you just drop it in there. So, so you, have to, you have to create this well around it. And you also need to, we also used to stake it and tie it to the stake, right? So that that way it would not blow over. Why? Because its root system hadn't developed enough to hold it upright. It would topple over with even the slightest breeze, depending on what kind of tree it was. And it's the same with the church. When the church first began, when it was in its infancy, it needed miracles. It needed prophecy. It needed tongues and, and miraculous healing But once it was established, once the canon of Scripture was completed, those things stopped. And the writer of Hebrews validates this temporary and revelatory purpose for his gifts, these miraculous gifts in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, where the writer of Hebrews says, At that time, God also testified, how? By signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Hebrews being a later book, even then we're starting to see the gifts diminish in their influence and their need. And the writer of Hebrews says, God was using those things as a sign to testify. The message of salvation was preached, and alongside that message, God confirmed the messengers specifically through extraordinary signs and miracles. And he did that because the church was immature. And so when those things are no longer, when the church is established, when that tree gets its roots into the ground and those roots spread out, you can take the stakes away, you can smooth out the mound of dirt because the, church, the tree is able to sustain itself on its own with its, the way God has designed it. And so it is with the church. This is affirmed by Paul's analogy in verse 11. He says, when I was a child... Right? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So he picks up this theme of in part and completion and passing away from verse 10, and then he illustrates it here in this word picture in verse 11. The behavior of a young child is, in fact, appropriate to childhood. I have to constantly remind myself of that. The kids are kids. They're not little adults, even though I wish they were sometimes. Right? There's, there's, a, there's an innocence and there's a simplicity, such as the kingdom of heaven. We probably should look at them in that light. But the reality is that kids will be kids. There's an appropriateness to being a child. And, uh, but the adult ought not to continue to talk and think and reason like a child when they're not a child anymore. So, behavior from one period in your life is not appropriate to another period in your life. And therefore, when the one is done away, then the other comes in. So, hopefully, as we grow up, we stop acting, talking, and reasoning like children. And some of us do, and some of us don't. But the reality is that's what should be. And Paul understood this, and that's what he's explaining here. The gifts by analogy are appropriate to the life of the church but each has its own place for the early church it was appropriate for prophecy and tongues and knowledge to stay and support the church in its infancy but when god's word was established and the apostolic tradition was inscribed in the 27 books of the new testament then the time for those things ceased And for the present church, it is appropriate in God's church now to use the gifts of teaching and helps and administrations and faith and service and exhortation and mercy. And these miraculous gifts, these non-miraculous gifts, we should say, for the building up of the body. But when the end of the age comes, the church will be made perfect in holiness. And at that time, even those gifts will cease. And so he concludes in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part but when i will but then i will know fully just as i also have been fully known so paul puts the imperfection of the present age in contrast stark contrast with the perfection of the age to come our sight of god now is limited, it is imperfect, and it stands in contrast with what it will be at the end of the age. Just as with seeing, he says, it is with knowing. Our knowledge of God in the here and now is imperfect, and it stands in contrast to what will be at the end of the age when we shall know even as we are known, which has an idea of completion. God knows us thoroughly and perfectly and completely, and that's how we will know him. It's a difference in quality. It's the difference between looking at a photograph of somebody and looking at them face to face. What is Paul's point in saying all this? As good as the spiritual gifts are, as diverse and effectual and awe-inspiring as they may be, they are only for a season, and there will come a time when it will all pass away. They aren't permanent. They're transitory and temporal, and when they have, while they have their appropriate place, eventually they will pass away and give way to that which is eternal, and namely, perfect love. That's his point. Love never fails. But the gifts, along with everything else in this present age, the way we know it now, that will cease. That will cease. This is his argument. And so he he's laid out the confirmation of love's endurance. He's set over against that, the contrast of life's impermanence in this present order, and that gives way lastly to verse 13 to the conclusion of love's preeminence. The conclusion is love's, we see love's preeminence. He says, But now, now as things are, now in conclusion, is kind of what he's getting at there. Over against the things that are temporary, Paul sets these eternal realities, faith, hope, and love. He says, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He, as he lists them out, these three realities, he effectively sets them apart from everything else. They are uppermost. They're preeminent. No one else stands on the podium with faith, hope, and love. They, they wrap their arms around the totality of our Christian experience. And as you and I live out our Christian lives, we are awaiting the consummation of all things. We have faith now toward God. We must entirely trust in him for our righteousness, for the forgiveness of sins, for peace with God. That only comes through faith. You can't earn it. You can't accomplish it in your own power or capacity. It's a gift that we receive on the basis of faith in Christ. And even though now we don't see him or we see him in a mirror dimly, we trust in his goodness. We trust in his mercy. We trust in his righteousness for our forgiveness. We also have hope, hope for the future, which has been guaranteed for us by our union with Christ. If we are in him, All that is his is ours. And of course, the resurrection, which we're going to get into in chapter 15, confirms that hope, that that we are now to be a future-oriented people. We are looking ahead to the future. This world is on its way out. And so while we walk in the Spirit, we live, as chapter 7 says, as if we did not live in this life now. We're on our way home destined for a glorious existence in God's presence that is face-to-face with our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our hope. And we also have love for one another as we live this life of faith and hope in the context of God's people and his church, as we love and serve our brothers and sisters who have that same faith and that same hope. So in the present life of the church, he says, these three remain, or these three continue, faith, hope, and love. He says, but the greatest of these is love. Even though love is very much active in the present, along with faith and hope, he says, love outstrips them all. Love is the greatest of these. It stands head and shoulders above the rest because it continues on into eternity, which the other two, by their very nature, will not. There's no need for faith when faith has become sight. There's no need for hope when all our hopes have been realized in Christ Jesus. But love, that one necessary thing, the ground of all godliness, that will never fail. And so the conclusion of the matter is this. These three glorious realities, faith, hope, and love, are those things that matter the most, with love being the greatest and highest virtue that we as a church must pursue if we're going to live truly holy lives in the present age. In a sense, in a sense, Paul is challenging us the way Jesus challenged the crowds after he fed the 5,000, you might remember that, all this free food to their heart's content, and that drew a crowd in that day. And Jesus turned in John 6, in verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, the crowd's idea of what truly mattered, Jesus confronts as being far too small. Right? They were following Jesus around because they thought he could heal their sicknesses. And he could. They thought he could fill their bellies. He thought they could li- he could liberate them from their Roman oppressors. Jesus says, all that stuff you're clamoring for, all that stuff that you're enamored with is temporary. It's transitory. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. You need to be most concerned about, most devoted to what's truly important, what's truly weighty, what truly endures, not just in the present, but in the present into eternity. And it's the same for you and for me. We need to be preoccupied. This is the application. This is Paul's argument. We need to be preoccupied with what truly matters. And what truly matters isn't whether we have this gift or that gift or occupy this position in the church or that position in the church. What matters is is that you and I would be, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What matters is that we would cultivate an attitude through the Spirit of God that chooses to put the benefits and welfare of others ahead of our own interests for the glory of God. That's what it means to love God the way he has loved us. Because, and this is his reasoning, Love, heaven's life manifesting us on earth, will never become redundant. It will never become obsolete. It will never become irrelevant. But all these other things, all these other things will pass away. He says at the end, love does not fail. And so he turns the corner in chapter 14 and verse 1, and he says, pursue love. Make that your aim. Make that your goal. Yes, desire spiritual gifts, but he says, above all, pursue what really matters, and that is a heart of Christian love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways in which uh, Paul cuts through all the distortions and all the things that cloud our minds and distract us in this world and he, and he cuts down to he's always getting to foundational things it's one of the realities that we just observe again and again as we study his writing and his your word written, communicated through his his letters and he's always getting back to ultimate things the glory of god that which is eternal that which endures i pray lord that we would be preoccupied with those same things that we would not labor for the food that perishes the things in this life that are coming and going and pass away, that we would be fully devoted to what truly matters and what truly endures, not not just in this life, but endures this life, but into eternity. And we know that all of that is grounded in love. So may we pursue love as a church. May we be known as a church who love one another in all the ways that Paul describes in the preceding verses And may we make that love of Christ known as we proclaim the good news of the gospel so that others might be brought into and share that eternal love and might bring forth that love in their own lives for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.